Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories, more fallout on the leak of the draft Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade, with the ABA calling for additional security for the high court and federal judges as protests ramp up. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says his state won't comply with any out-of-state investigations if states like Texas try to enforce their civil and criminal abortion bans in New Jersey, which could have wide-reaching implications. And at the end of the episode, we'll highlight a report from ProPublica this week about the state of Louisiana filing thousands of lawsuits against its own citizens to recoup disaster relief money handed out after Hurricane Katrina. And let me tell you, when you hear how incompetently that relief was handled by the state, you'll be wondering, like I am, where the state found the audacity to sue these folks. All that and more, here's what you need to know. Up first in more row-related news, which I'm sure we're going to get a lot of in the near future, Congress just passed a bill that would extend security measures for the families of SCOTUS judges called the Supreme Court Police Parity Act. Now, why would they be passing such a bill? Check out videos of people protesting outside the justices' houses online. Not great. This week, however, the ABA asked Congress to extend security to all federal judges. Specifically, the ABA asked the Senate pass the Judicial Security and Privacy Act of 2021, which has unanimous support so far from the Senate Judiciary Committee. According to a Law 360 write-up on the bill, it would prevent the public disclosure of personally identifiable information on both justices and judges, including addresses and names of schools and employers of immediate family members. So I looked at the draft legislation, and some interesting things are worth highlighting. Uh, Apparently, between 2015 and 2019, threats and other inappropriate communications against federal judges and other judiciary personnel increased from 926 in 2015 to approximately 4,500 in 2019. So the bill would purportedly regulate certain private speech, however, making it unlawful for data brokers to sell personally identifying information of the judges, but also make it illegal for anyone to post that information online. It's kind of a bit like an anti-doxing bill in that regard. Um, Does this pass First Amendment, Mester? I'm not sure. Doxing, of course, is dangerous and people shouldn't do it. But wouldn't posting the address of a federal judge online probably be protected speech under the First Amendment? I'm not sure. Anyways, ABA President Reginald Turner thinks it is necessary, writing to Congress, quote, steps need to be taken now to preserve the ability of all of our judges to decide matters that come before them based on the facts presented and the law without fear of reprisal or physical harm to themselves or their family by disgruntled litigants or other affected individuals, unquote. No disagreement from me. I suspect protests over the overturning of Roe could get really ugly if recent protests are any indication. Up next, sticking with the recent SCOTUS drama and the political crisis over the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade. And let me just read this tweet from New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy to you. Quote, let me be clear. New Jersey will not cooperate with any out-of-state investigation into our health care providers that seeks to punish anyone, patient, provider, counselor, friend, or Uber driver for providing abortion care. Unquote. So what is he talking about? A few things as far as I can tell. 
So there are laws on the books like the Interstate Depositions and Discovery Act that have been adopted by most states that make it much easier for out-of-state litigants to issue subpoenas in other states. An example of this might be that, say, I am litigating a commercial case in Illinois and a witness has, I don't know, finance records located in Michigan. I can issue a subpoena that the state of Michigan will enforce on my behalf under the Interstate Depositions and Security Act. There is also Article 4, Section 1 of the Constitution, which contains the full faith and credit clause, quote, full faith and credit shall be given to each state, to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state, unquote. So I'm not an expert. I don't practice in this area. But suffice it to say that there are many scenarios whereby an investigation, whether civil or criminal, is taking place in one state, but it is counting on the court system and law enforcement of another state to enforce things like subpoenas, orders compelling discovery, things like that. Considering how interconnected the country is nowadays, these laws and practices allow things like lawsuits to happen much more seamlessly in our federalized system than they did prior to their adoption. Governor Murphy in this case is referring to, at least to me, it seems like, maybe the Texas-style bounty laws that allow citizens to sue anyone who has an abortion or anyone who generally helps them have an abortion. And that's what Murphy's comments are about the Uber drivers, by the way. There's speculation that even driving a woman to a clinic in Texas is enough for a citizen to sue you under the bounty law. So what he's saying is that New Jersey is not going to enforce out-of-state subpoenas or aid in the out-of-state investigations regarding abortions. Basically, even though New Jersey has adopted the Interstate Depositions and Security Act, and I'm sure many others similar, and probably has certain obligations under the Full Faith and Credit Clause, New Jersey isn't going to help Texas out. I don't know, folks. I don't have a well-thought-out opinion on this other than this type of policy is the kind of thing that really puts stress on our federalized system. What happens if New Jersey won't cooperate in a criminal investigation or a civil lawsuit in Texas? I'm sure there are lawyers out there who know more. I don't. But I mention it because I think we'll see more and more stress placed on our federalized system as the row-related issues like this shake out, especially over the summer. All right, our last story, it's the 17th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, the hurricane that destroyed huge amounts of New Orleans and the Louisiana Gulf Coast area. Since then, the area has been rocked by Hurricane Ida and other severe weather. And in 2008, three years after the Katrina disaster, the state of Louisiana rolled out a federally funded road home program whereby applicants could receive grant money up to around $30,000 to elevate their homes so that the next flood wouldn't be so severe. I'm relying on a ProPublica piece for this segment. You should check it out. It's by Richard Webster, and it was done in partnership with ProPublica's local reporting network. Going back to the piece, Louisiana gave out grants to about 32,000 homeowners starting in 2008. The grant agreement specifically said that the money had to be used to elevate the houses. However, this story involves homeowners who allegedly were told that they could use the money instead to do repairs on their homes. More specifically, homeowners in Louisiana who wanted to elevate their homes had looked into it at various times and found that the cost of doing so was closer to 100000 Certain homeowners then went to ask road home representatives if they could use the money for repairs to their homes instead and allegedly were told that they could. So many individuals in Louisiana used the money to do just that. However, these grants were federally funded, and starting in 2017, according to the ProPublica piece, the state of Louisiana was under pressure from the federal government to recoup some of this money. ProPublica reports that the state has sued about 
3,500 of its own citizens, roughly one in nine recipients of the road home grants for failing to raise their homes after Hurricane Katrina and Rita. The issue here is that people were allegedly told they could use the money for other purposes by various authoritative representatives. Quoting from the piece, quote, the real problem, however, wasn't that people ignored the rules, according to an investigation by local outlets and ProPublica. It's that the state Office of Community Development and a contractor that had hired in 2006, ICF Emergency Management Systems, mismanaged the program. For more than a decade since, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development has insisted that the state recoup the money from people who are noncompliant, unquote. Louisiana's response to this has been to sue thousands of its own homeowners who are disproportionately black and low income and who are now facing judgments, liens, or crippling payment plans. Quote, the state is seeking $103 million in the elevation lawsuit. So far, it's recovered nearly 5% of that from 425 families through the suit, said Pat Forbes, executive director of the Office of Community Development. The agency tried to avoid taking such an aggressive approach, he said, but the state is required by the federal government to claw back money from people who didn't follow the grant requirements. We've gone to great lengths to try and not have to take the money back from people, Forbes said, adding that the state will not foreclose on anyone's home to collect, unquote. So the piece goes on to talk about how this program actually worked in practice. In 2008, the state sent 40,000 letters to homeowners advertising to them that they were eligible for the grants. Quote, the state of Louisiana is pleased to announce that funds are now available to assist you in the cost of elevating your home, the letter said. To get the money, homeowners had to agree to raise their homes within three years of receiving grants. Yet one homeowner, Donnie Small, who's mentioned in the piece, met with a road home representative, he said, and was told that he could put the $30,000 grant towards repairs. That money, according to him, was a godsend. Donnie Small was one of tens of thousands of Louisiana residents that was absolutely crushed by Katrina. The ProPublica piece profiles people being sued by the state, and I recommend reading it because these are good people who are absolutely being screwed by their state and local governments. Small was a public bus driver outside of New Orleans and worked for about 37 years in that job. During the cleanup of Katrina, he volunteered to shuttle first responders 29 miles every morning and night, even when his own family was literally underwater. Small owned a one-story house that he shared with his wife and two daughters. It was flooded with two feet of water, and everything he had had to be gutted and replaced. He apparently received 60000 from insurance payouts, but that's hardly anything when it comes to gutting and replacing things like electrical wiring, drywall, carpeting, and to say nothing of the personal property lost in the house. Unable to afford other accommodations, his family slept on air mattresses in the gutted structure, wearing masks to keep the dust out. So, Mr. Small received a letter from Road Home, which he described as a godsend. Of course, now he's a defendant in a lawsuit filed by the state. Listen to how these grants were administered, and you can already tell that this was going to be a disaster. Quote, once the state office of community development received an application, it sent the money to homeowners. Jeff Haley, who helped administer the elevation grant program as an official with ICF from 2006 through 2009, said in testimony during one of the elevation lawsuits. No one double-checked before the money went out that homeowners were eligible or that their homes needed to be elevated, said Haley, who is now with the State Division of Administration. The state simply didn't have time, he said. There was pressure to get the funds out into the community as fast as possible. 
The state told news organizations that it selected people whose homes were in flood-prone areas and who had already received another road home grant. It was up to homeowners to determine how much they needed to elevate their homes, officials said. And if they learned that they were already at the correct height, they should have returned the money. But when homeowners informed road home representatives, sometimes in writing, that they didn't plan to elevate their homes, they were verbally told that they could use the money for repairs, according to at least eight families and eight attorneys representing more than 200 other homeowners, unquote. So all this gets confusing because later the state actually did change the rules to allow that money from the Road Hope program to be used for repairs. But the original recipients, like Mr. Small, were only approved for funding for elevation. Small in particular said that he would never have accepted the money if he hadn't been told he could use it to fix his home. And the details of the story really make it sound like the Road Home program was doomed from the start. The state estimated it would typically cost about $110,000 to raise a 1,500-square-foot home three feet in the air. So the $30,000 grant doesn't even get you halfway. Theoretically, they there should have been relatively few grant recipients under this pay structure since most people don't have the 80K cash lying around to make up the difference. Get this. 53% of grantees who had to hit the three-year deadline to spend the money had not elevated their homes as of 2012. Then in 2013, the state decided to allow grant recipients to use the money for the cost of repairs and living expenses, but only if they kept receipts. Now, since the money was originally distributed in 2008, and back then the original grant program required no proof of receipts, most people don't have them. So in 2015, the state sent out inspectors to see whether improvements were made to the grantees' homes for damages from Katrina as a way to verify how those funds were used in lieu of receipts. But since 2005, Louisiana has been hit with so many hurricanes and floods, it's impossible to determine whether improvements or repairs were made from Katrina or Ida or from anything else. The state gave up on the inspections after only two years. Now, it is worth reminding you all that the pressure that the state was coming under was from the federal government. In 2015, the federal government issued a warning to Louisiana that if it didn't commit to, quote, vigorous enforcement against fraud, waste, and abuse, unquote, the federal agency would look at all of its options. According to ProPublica, HUD guidelines say failure to repay misspent funds can result in a reduction in current or future grants, including disaster assistance. The homeowners that can are lawyering up and trying to defend themselves in the suit, According to lawyers for the grantees quoted in the piece, there are two ways a homeowner can win these cases, attorneys said. You can provide the receipts or you can prove that the homeowner wasn't eligible and the state knew it when the contract was signed. Now, this piece gives an example of the latter. Quote, Mark and Donna Ledger were able to pull that off. When they filled out a road home application, they provided a certificate showing their house in Cameron Parish was above the required height. On a printout of their road home application, next to the question, is the home required to be elevated, the no box is checked. And yet, the state still awarded the Ledgers a $30,000 elevation grant. According to a court filing, Mark Ledger testified that a road home representative told him he could use the money to elevate his air conditioning units or the utility meter or to repair his house. Eleven years later, the state sued him. And luckily, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled for the Ledgers, unquote. So this is obviously a mess. Imagine being one of the grantees in this position. I'm sure there was a ton of fraud after Katrina. When the government money comes flowing with no oversight, it's inevitable. Make a mental bookmark for that point when I inevitably cover similar stories related to the pandemic PPP loans.
But the, the piece makes clear that there was genuine confusion and, frankly, incompetence in administrating this system. And because of that, people who had already nearly been destroyed by the hurricane are now fighting the state. Hopefully this ProPublica report shines a light on what's happening in Louisiana and the people affected can get some relief. And a quick update for everyone before we close the episode. Remember the Surfside condo collapse in South Florida that we covered back on episode five? I said on that episode that the primary issue with the lawsuit would be the division of the settlement proceeds and the lack of adequate coverage. Now, remember, 98 individuals lost their lives in the collapse, and every single unit owner in the building lost their home when it was demolished 10 days after the initial collapse. Well, there is some good news. Uh, the court in that lawsuit just approved the nearly $1 billion settlement for the wrongful death cases. I'm not sure how it's going to be divided, but the quick math shows about $10 million per estate of each deceased person, which, to be fair, going by Chicago personal injury standards is a bit light, but better than what people originally thought, myself included. Apparently, the lawyers were able to find additional coverage from a piece in the AP this week, quote, I think it's fantastic, Judge Hansman said, reacting to the update from the attorneys. This is a recovery that is far in excess of what I had anticipated, unquote. So at least I wasn't the only person that was wrong about this. Now, if you have been involved in mass tort lawsuits before, the timeline on this settlement is really impressive. Oftentimes, just fighting over the division of the proceeds, etc., can take years. Considering this collapse happened in 2021, this is very good work by the lawyers on both sides of the dispute. Nice job, folks. Hopefully the families and those affected can get some relief. Thanks, everyone. That's the show. If you're enjoying the show so far, we, of course, appreciate you. And it would be a big favor to us if you maybe share it online or tell some friends about it. Otherwise, you know where to find us every Tuesday. We'll talk to you next week.